The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello. Welcome to our final special episode recorded on October 6th at Capital Weekly's conference on the mental health crisis. Uh, We'll be getting back to our regular episodes next week. Thanks so much for listening. And with that, on with the show. Uh, My name is Tim Foster. I'm with Capital Weekly. And I want to welcome you all to the final panel of today's program on California's mental health crisis. Today's panel will look at COVID and its impact on mental health, which I think uh, our panelists and our moderator will agree has been extreme. I think we've all seen much evidence of that over the last 18 months. Uh, And before we get started on the event itself, I would like to thank our sponsors. Capital Weekly is a 501c3 nonprofit. The only way we can really do these sorts of events is with the support of our sponsors and underwriters. And for today, chief among them is our gold sponsor, Kaiser Permanente. Then we also have the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. They have been a longtime supporter of Capital Weekly and everything we do. Uh, We also have to thank the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, the Associated Builders and Contractors in Northern California, California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters. And they have all made their support available for us to be able to present this today. And if you have questions, uh, please go to the Q&A function, pose those. We will get those to the moderators and the panelists uh, on your behalf. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to our moderator, Dan Moraine. Dan is a longtime journalist in California. Uh, He has been with the Los Angeles Times, with the Sacramento Bee, and he has recently transitioned. Oh, and CalMatters was also with CalMatters for a few years, but he has recently transitioned to his new role, which is author. And he recently published uh, Camel's Way, a biography of Kamala Harris. And that came out in January, uh, just, I think, maybe about a week before she was inaugurated as vice president. So with that, I'm going to turn you over to Dan. Thank you all for uh, watching. And uh, Dan, you can go live whenever you're ready to roll. Well, thank you. Thank you very much to John Howard and Tim Foster of Capital Weekly for organizing uh, today's important and informative event and for putting together what I know will be a very interesting panel focused on the impact of the COVID pandemic on mental health. We've all had tough times navigating the pandemic, but as the panelists know, people living with severe mental illness or who are at risk have had a much more difficult time. I trust the viewers have gone to uh, capitalweekly.net, that is C-A-P-I-T-O-L, weekly.net, to read the panelists' biographies. I'm, I'm not, so I'm, Rather than introduce them, I'd, I'd like to jump right in with questions, starting with, with Tom Sopp of the Long Beach Unified School District. I, I think everybody is uh, of the view that in order to uh, uh, prevent some of what we see on the streets, some of what Dr. Galley uh, uh, and uh, uh, Jessica Cruz uh, know all too well, uh, the severe mental illness, we have to catch it early. Um, Tom of the uh, Tom Sop of the Long Beach Unified School District. You um, you had students who were no doubt troubled who you were seeing at the beginning of March of 2020, and then all of a sudden you couldn't see them in person anymore. Uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about um, maybe one of your students who you were trying to help and how this has impacted her or him. Yeah, so I'm a school psychologist with the Long Beach Unified School District, and many in the audience may not know what a school psychologist is. In fact, I didn't find out until my 30s, and then I became one. But a school psychologist basically works with, uh, specializes in working with children and their families and then working in a school system. And so my primary role within the district was providing counseling services to both 
students in the general education and special education programs. And so on the 2019 school, by March of the 2019-20 school year, I had a full caseload of students I was working with. Some of them for some very serious uh, referral reasons, such as suicidal ideation, anxiety, depression. And the messaging I was receiving from my district in March was that, you know, we're gonna stay open until the end of the school year. But then in that same month, uh, Gavin Newsom declared um, a state of emergency, which closed all of our services. And that kind of really created, um, I mean, all services. I mean, all counseling stopped as well, which created a panic in us because we're working with all these students. And so we had to really pivot. And and what our team did was create a check-in process to get us through the end of the school year and... um, one of my one student that comes to mind is a student who I've seen for anxiety. And so I checked in with this student. And um, as you can imagine, his anxiety was off the chart because now that I'm, I'm calling him, he's at home. His, his mother, you know, contracted uh, COVID. And so she's sequestered in one part of the house. He can't see her or visit her. You know, he has all these thoughts. Is my mom going to die? Am I going to get COVID? Am I going to die? And so it really impacted, you know, that student uh, at that time. Now, in 2020, of course, we started telecounseling services and we saw a significant increase in students who were uh, referred to us because of anxiety and depression and, and loneliness. And so that's kind of how, how, the, how it impacted uh, our caseloads. That's so interesting. So uh, Dr. Marcille, uh, Paul Marcille of the California Psychological Association, you see clients too. Um, maybe you have a, a similar story or, or well, tell, tell us, tell us your, um, how, it, how it immediately affected you and your sure. clients. Sure. And I, I, maybe I can speak in general, and I'll give you a specific example. I mean, we've seen an enormous increase in the number of people requesting uh, psychological services, uh, psychotherapy for individual, family, couples-related issues, to the degree that it's, it's, it's extremely difficult to, um, to find anyone who has openings, any of my colleagues that have availability. Um, the same in the, among my psychiatric colleagues and, and social workers and marriage and family therapists. Um, in the, the United States, there's been an, an enormous increase in reported uh, cases of anxiety and depression. Um, there was a survey done earlier this year. Um, I mean, we know that at any one time, approximately 20% or one out of five people are suffering from some type of psychological condition. Um, a recent survey found that, that almost 41% of people who responded um, have had at least one adverse mental or behavioral health uh, condition um, to report, including symptoms of anxiety and depression, a 30% increase, uh, um, trauma and stress-related disorders, an increase of about 26, 27%, uh, um, increase in, in substance abuse, uh, um, which is uh, dramatic uh, um, and a significant increase in, in uh, drug overdose and deaths. Uh, um, Dan, you had asked me a couple of days ago when we talk about suicide and if there's been an increase, um, there has not been. Uh, there's been an increase in, in reported uh, uh, suicidal ideation um, among people, but not an increase in, in suicides, thank goodness. that we're still concerned that the mental health impacts of COVID are going to extend for months, if not years uh, beyond this point. Um, and I do want to point out that, that the people who are most vulnerable to mental health conditions were people who already had an issue uh, to begin with. Uh, so COVID has caused an exacerbation of those things. Um, and the, the, the populations that have been most significantly affected are those that oftentimes have difficulty getting access to, to service. Uh, um, so uh, populations of color, disabled people, elderly people, and as well as caregivers, uh, uh, you know, uh, first responders, health caregivers, and uh, um, you know, unpaid caregivers, people who just take care of someone in their home. Um, I've been dealing with a number of, of adult professionals in the Bay Area where I live and work, um, and many of them are, stuck, are struggling because of having to work from home, not being able to go in to see colleagues, to socialize and get the emotional um, and social support that they normally get you know, from work and social activities. Um, they're working at home, oftentimes with children at home and, and spouses. Um, and as I'm sure most of you who are married can relate to I me, mean, most of us 
never anticipated spending 24 hours a day, you know, month after month, up to a year and a half, you know, with our, our partners. Um, and so that's creating tensions among couples. Jessica, Jessica Cruz of, of the National Association on Mental Illness. You, uh, you work with families who have uh, uh, family members who are living with mental illness. You've got family members yourself who, who do or a family member who, who does. Tell me, tell me what you're, tell the audience what, what, what COVID the last 18 months ha- has been like. Well, I think that the one thing that COVID has brought to light and has exacerbated is the challenge of, challenge of mental illness that many of us who are watching have been dealing with for years. So families like mine, have been struggling for decades, just trying to navigate the system where doors are constantly shut in our face, leaving us to fend for ourselves. And I think that with COVID-19, it has um, opened the door to some some great opportunities. But I I do think that families, um, especially those who currently live with loved ones with serious mental illness, uh, it brought other challenges where they um, are trying to find services for their loved ones. They can't meet them in person. Where is their loved one going to be housed? Is that housing safe and secure, especially when the virus was first rampant and and now with the the Delta variant? Um, We've always been uh, caring for and loving our family member who is going through a mental health challenge. Uh, But with COVID-19, it had brought many new challenges uh, that we hadn't faced. And so it already, it took a, already siloed and fragmented system and made it 10 times worse. And the one thing that I want to make sure that I point out is that it's not only for that individual trying to navigate that system, but the families, the families had nowhere to turn to and, and nobody to support them through it all as well. And like living with your spouse uh, for 18 months side by side, I think when, when you're living with um, a loved one who has a serious mental illness, uh, it caused other uh, unanticipated challenges as well. And sometimes um, made somebody who might've been well into recovery go back down into a crisis because we know that mental illness is not linear, right? It, it, it's a, it's peaks and valleys of when people are in recovery and doing well. And, and then when people might need a little bit more at severe interventions. Uh, and I would, in COVID-19, I, I would say that, that that was probably a time where a lot of families needed higher levels of intervention. Um. Dr. Mark Galley, Health and Human Services Secretary, thank you so much for, for taking the time. You have lived, and this has been a, such an important part of your career's work, uh, dealing with, with mental illness at the county level and now at the state level. Um, you know, this is a governor who has certainly earmarked a, a, a boatloads of money for mental health care. Um, how do you how do you see the situation today and and the impact of 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 covid on on what you're doing as as it relates to mental health care yeah first thanks uh dan for including me today and uh tom paul and jessica uh pleasure to be with you and and so much of what you say resonates jessica i think you, you articulated nicely what I've often said about the pandemic, which is it has been the great unmasker of disparities and inequities and the great accelerant for change. And Tom, you spoke about the experience on day one. What do we do, right? You're going to close the schools. The, the, what are we going to do? How do we access the people that we have had relationship with and depend on us? And um, I think Behavioral health uh, as an industry, if you will, in California, did the pivot that uh, healthcare in general did, and they did it almost better than anyone else, continuing to provide services the best they can, accelerating the move into telehealth services. But we have heard and we know 
that that isn't good enough. That isn't enough to keep the relationships and the momentum going. So um, when I think about the COVID impact on behavioral health, I think about it in three buckets. First, it's what did the pandemic do to the conditions of people's lives that created additional stressors and accelerated um, or unmasked uh, behavioral health conditions worsen them. And we saw that a lot with young people, Tom. I think your experiences with schools, we saw a lot of young people just worried about their future, cut off from relationships and those conditions made a huge difference. I think also the entire engagement around COVID in the number of young people I know who were nervous, anxious about being tested, even if negative, was a very major issue for our state. And then when you add on comorbidity, family members who've been affected, communities that have been ravished, even the simple act of getting tested, let alone getting a positive diagnosis, creates an acceleration and a manifestation of severe behavioral health um, conditions. And then uh, on the sort of extreme, and I know, Dan, you you are very interested in how the most um, severely impacted individuals, Californians with behavioral conditions, how they fare in this. Um, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that, for example, um, uh, decompensated schizophrenia is probably the second most common risk factor for death with COVID, second only to age, right? So we talk a lot about how important it's been to focus on older Californians and their risk factors, the focus on different um, place, race, ethnicity factors that have driven some of the outcomes that we've seen. But we haven't spent as much time talking about the fact that those with serious mental illness were at risk for very severe consequences from um, COVID. Uh, and it makes sense, right? The, the ability, the dependence, the conditions that uh, we, we have set up for those with severe mental uh, uh, behavioral health conditions, not just mental health, but on the substance use disorder side as well. The data is also staggering. Um, I think is really, really important. So when I think about its impact, I think about it in those three major buckets, how the conditions have shifted, the way behavioral health has manifested itself in California, how having conditions um, allowed you to be at increased uh, risk for bad outcomes. And then, of course, uh, especially as a card-carrying pediatrician, a father of four, that impact of um, just what the entire uh, dealing with a, a positive or even a, a just test uh, would do. When I think about what it's done, Dan, just to our focus on behavioral health in general, it, I think what it has done is for me, and I think for our, our entire administration and the governor, really accelerated the urgency by which we put interventions um, out there. I, I'll spend a little bit of time at some point talking about our large investment in children's behavioral health and this idea that we really want to uh, invest in upstream interventions that really begin to identify those earliest challenges with behavioral health because we know enough about when uh, severe conditions begin to manifest. It's when, they're, when, when people are young. And so how do we begin to address those with very thoughtful, large-scale interventions that take some of the changes that we've seen uh, in COVID, but really uh, augment that with some other, other attributes uh, in terms of connections with schools, connections with uh, uh, our, our formal clinical delivery system, and building up sort of that relational wealth that we know is going to be really important to sort of bend the curve on outcomes, affect not just inpatient services and acute care uh, state hospitals, incarceration, homelessness, but really give young people who are uh, uh, likely or, or could experience the severe outcomes or, or difficult outcomes of severe behavioral health conditions, give them more tools to be able to um, get through childhood into adulthood um, uh, uh, with the strength and uh, support that we know is going to be important to to really change the future of this crisis in California. So, so Tom, that, that seems to me to go right back in your lap, uh, dealing with, 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 um, with uh, young people and 
trying to to catch early warning signs. Do you believe you have been able to catch as many this year as you were in say 2019, 2018? Uh, or do you do you and and Paul and Jessica, please feel free to jump in. I mean, uh, you know, are more young people uh, maybe not getting the help that they that they uh, need early so that they don't end up on the streets sometime later? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. When we look at our data uh, for this school year thus far, which has been about a month for us in Long Beach, we've received the most referrals in the first month uh, ever since we've existed, these services have existed. And so I'm really proud of our, you know, uh, staff, our, our teachers and, and um administrators are able to identify uh, students. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that they can identify students, you know, with um, sadness and depression. It seems like we're getting an increase in, in those referrals, which would make a lot of sense uh, given the situation that we're in. And, and so, you know, for the most part, I, I see, you know, increase in services. I, I see when I talk with school psychologists and, and school counselors uh, up and down the state, a lot of innovation, as you were talking about earlier, in terms of providing program, like uh, groups, uh, individual services. Um, but the sad news is, is it really isn't enough, um, I mean, especially at the secondary level, because we see um, you know, e even other behaviors, more aggression this school year. Um, as what was said earlier, is that there's not enough licensed providers to go around, and it's difficult for you know, uh, people to access those services. The same is true for school counselors, school psychologists, and school social workers. There's really not enough of us to go around. There's a shortage there as well. And, and I think that's really critical to point out because um, that's really the first line of defense because we're in the schools, we're seeing the students on a daily basis. Um, you know, we're the ones who are providing a lot of the um, prevention, universal intervention uh, services for students. And so, you know, the, the good news is, at least from my perspective, is that is, it is causing school districts to, to think out of the box. What else can we do? Um, you know, we just wish that there was more of us to go around. Jessica, uh, Paul? Yeah, I think um, for, you know, I have an almost 13-year-old, and she's in junior high, and, and been in school for about six weeks now and has already had a couple of her friends come to her and and talk to her about you know self-harm or where do you go and you know luckily she has me in the household to talk through things and she has her own counselor to kind of get some um advice from but at school and within her school she has no one to turn to and no one to go to and i think that it's a really important issue to bring up in that students um, need a lot of education around what is mental illness? What are your feelings? What, you know, and it should start early. It should really start in, in that elementary school level where we start to talk about and learn um, in classrooms about mental health in the same way that you're learning about your physical health and taking care of your physical well-being. We need to start teaching our kids and educating our kids about our mental well-being and have that connection to resources, whether that is school psychologists or counselors, which would be so wonderful if everybody had access. I know that for my story, I live with a, a mother who lives with a severe mental illness. If I would have had any kind of education or a club like NAMI has a NAMI on campus club that brings awareness I would have at least known what was happening in my household. There was a place for me to go. And I think oftentimes we also forget that it, the children or the students that might be suffering with depression, anxiety, it also might be something that they're dealing with in their household of living with somebody who has a severe mental illness and that manifests at school. So the aggression that maybe we're seeing, the, the, the unawareness of how do I deal with my feelings and who do I talk to? So there's the education piece, then there's the connection to resources. And then the last thing I want to say about schools and students and young people is making sure that parents have the education around resources and mental illness. 
and not only teachers that they understand and are maybe trained on certain things. My spouse is an educator. So, you know, he comes home with stories all the time about um, students who he, you know, has had to handle um, maybe a crisis at school, but also that they themselves are able to take care of their mental health because I saw firsthand how the pandemic impacted teachers uh, when, with their own mental health. And, and I know just within our school district, there has been a tremendous turnover in early retirements or teachers, and there is a huge gap for educators. And a lot of it had to do with the pandemic and people having to take care of their own mental health. Mm. Um, you know, I think this is an interesting question from, from a member of the audience, Paul uh, Gauthier, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, maybe for, for Dr. Marcel, um, many, many health services are now being delivered via video as opposed to in person. Um, and the question is, can you comment on the efficacy of a video visit in comparison to an in-person visit now that providers and patients are vaccinated, we hope? Um, uh, why are providers still insisting on uh, video visits? And then I, I might add, um, maybe Dr. Galley could, could address this as, as, as well, that, that, you know, obviously, if you're severely mentally ill, you know, as, as useful as, as, as telemedicine is and, and how important it is, especially for, um, you know, people who live in rural areas and <clears throat> shut-ins, um, you know, you're just not going to reach severely mentally ill folks via, via telehealth. So yeah, well, I can address that, Dan. I mean, one, it, one of the things that was amazing at the beginning of the the, the pandemic and uh, when we were quarantining was how quickly most of us pivoted to using telehealth. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of anxiety and fear, fear that not being able to see our, our patients uh, and have that physical contact would impair our work and make it impossible. I think many of us have found that the telehealth has actually allowed one access uh, by a lot of people that didn't have access to mental health services before. I mean, the elderly, the disabled, uh, people who didn't live in areas uh, you know, where there were mental health services available. Um, I can personally tell you, personally, professionally, that there is an, an almost added dimension of intimacy, believe it or not, uh, um, with the video therapy sessions, particularly with adults. I mean, being able to see people in their home, um, they don't have to get dressed, drive to the doctor's office, wait in a waiting room and stuff. There's an artificiality about that type of relationship because what we do is a human kind of contact is a human relationship. Um, and for me, seeing people in their home environment, uh, though I have to admit, I'm tired of looking at unmade beds for the, the, the teenagers who I, I work with. Um, but seeing them in their home environment allows people to be, I think, less defensive, more open, um, and there's an intimacy there. Now, it doesn't work with everyone. Uh, and, and some of us have, have started to go back to seeing people on a face-to-face -face basis. I have the luxury of having a space outside um, where I can meet mostly adolescents, the, the kids I work with, and a couple of elderly people for whom the, the, the video thing doesn't work. Um, and for the person who asked, why aren't we seeing more people um, that, that people are vaccinated, is as we're all aware, people who are vaccinated can get COVID and transmit COVID. Um, and for those of us who work in offices with shared waiting rooms, uh, don't have ventilation systems, offices that don't have um, windows where we can have you know, exchange of, uh, of clean air, there still is a risk, not just to ourselves, but more importantly, to other people we see. Huh? I mean, if one person comes into the office that has COVID, we run the risk of, of uh, spreading it to other people who come in to see us. Um, so there's still some constraints about seeing people on a face-to-face on a, you know, -face type of basis. Yeah. Do you think that's going to change um, a year from now? Or does that kind of depend on science? I think so. I think it's going to depend. Well, I think it's depend on the COVID rates uh, and the development of new variants uh, um, if they come along. I mean, we frankly are concerned, and I'm sure Dr. Galley is aware of this. Uh, many of us are able to see people now by telehealth and even including phone conversations because there's a federal state of emergency. Okay. And some of the restrictions on the use of remote technology, particularly phones, but also video, have been removed. Um, and there's some concern that when 
the, the state of emergency is over, we may have to be uh, lobbying and fighting and advocating to continue to be able to see uh, and be paid for remote or telehealth services. So it sounds like an insurance issue. I would anticipate there will be some insurance issues. So, so Dr. Galley, um, how do you reach uh, people who are severely mentally ill? If you're, if what you said at the outset that 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 severe mental illness is right up there with with age as a risk factor, um, it, it, I mean, do, do you uh, wear out? Uh, the leather on your shoes, um, uh, uh, seeing people on the street, what, what do you do? And then I also wonder about uh, people of lower income who, you know, maybe don't have um, uh, the same internet that, that you and I have, um, uh, people who live in uh, far-flung places in California. I, I can well imagine there are people on, on, uh, living on reservations who, who maybe don't have access to to, um, you know, the internet like we do. Um, so anyway, what, how do you reach these folks in, in times of COVID? Well, um, first I appreciated Paul's comments and observations and, and I see, see us sort of on this swinging pendulum, if you will, and, and we had to go almost entirely exclusively to telehealth visits, video, telephone. And now I think the right questions even here today we're asking, you know, well, what is the quality? What is the impact? Uh, what sort of patients do well with televisits versus others? And it's not a one-size-fits-all. A patient might have in, in 10 interactions, half are televisits, half are face-to-face. -face. I think we're going to be learning that over time. And one of the things that we're looking at at the state is really trying to understand where this lands us not in a month or two, but in a few years and what the right mix of the use of these different technologies. Um, I really appreciated Paul's comments too, that uh, it, it is, uh, in some ways, it's really improved access for some people. It's made access more immediate. It's made wait times less. It's created the, it's reduced the energy to actually get the care that you need, that activation energy of getting dressed, showing up in the office, um, I think it's helped us scale some interventions in congregate settings around behavioral health, whether those are locked or unlocked con congregate settings as well. Um, the, the use of telehealth in uh, incarcerated settings, I think we did see go up. And I think some of those tools will be continued and um, help us. I think, though, uh, the work for some of the most severely ill um, folks on our streets, for example, it isn't going to be the only solution we can depend on. Again, part of the solution, but ensuring that we have teams of folks meeting uh, those who are on our streets in our institutions where they are, providing uh, access to care that I think is just in time, real time, is going to have to be one of our strategies. And I come back to a place where I think all the other three panelists have talked a bit about, which is our workforce crisis. Um, we are, right, when I think about what it's going to take to really build the behavioral health systems of the future here in California, it's not just going to take the work on, um, on bricks and mortar facilities, which there's a lot of that happening, happy to always address those things, but I think it's going to take a great deal of investment in our workforce. And we're doing some of that in the Children's Behavioral Health Initiative, but we need to do more. I think the idea that we have more licensed the classifications that we have today, that we increase the number in those classifications is uh, equally important to the creation of uh, additional classifications, uh, licensed and unlicensed that support helping uh, individuals with early or severe behavioral health conditions, um, uh, you know, improve and cope. And hopefully, uh, like I said before, sort of bend the arc of their lives towards not being incarcerated, not being on the street. So I think we have this tremendous opportunity in California, given the resources we have to really set a platform out where we do have the resources and the workforce that, you know, certainly one of the 
points of vision that I have and share with the governor that is in a handful of years, we are no longer saying, well, I would refer that person to early intervention services if only I had a place to refer them to. Like we want to see the workforce sufficient enough that every single one of those referrals has a place to go, a meaningful connection to make. And I think that starts to set us up well, not just on the early side, but really along the entire continuum to take care of the needs of Californians when it comes to behavioral health. And I keep emphasizing behavioral health because one of the areas that we have probably the greatest amount of gain to make is on our substance use disorder services and the need, whether it's on the adolescent side or the adult side, to really develop and flourish a workforce that is relevant, deals with the equity issues that we know are real and able to deliver the services that Californians need. So, so Dr. Galley, are you talking about um, incentives for uh, people who want to go into nursing to go into psychiatric nursing, people who want to go into medicine to uh, go into psychiatry, people who, you know, want to become psychologists to, to really home in on, on Absolutely. And and a focus on our social work pipeline, ensuring that we're delivering on issues of equity. We need to, we had a very uh, great conversation at the Behavioral Health Task Force that the agency uh, convenes yesterday about exactly this issue. How do we make sure not only that we're recruiting in number, but we're recruiting in geography, that we're recruiting in people who look and speak the languages of Californians suffering from behavioral health conditions. So all of the above, whether it's creating more pipeline programs in the K through 12, you know, the 12 through 16 grades, whether it's a focus on higher education and partnering with our uh, vocational institutions, our trade schools, CSUs, community colleges, UCs, um, other private institutions. I think it's all of the above to create a swell of momentum and energy to build this workforce and not just on the most acute care side of the equation, but early on, you know, Mm -hmm. focusing on uh, areas where Tom's team could really use another layer of support around them so that they can do the best they can with their licenses. Right. So I think really kind of uh, uh, developing new and innovative approaches. California is an innovator. We've always been an innovator in so many sectors. There's no reason why we aren't innovating in this space to deal with one of the most challenging problems our state faces. Mm-hmm. Jessica, have you seen that among um, among members of your organization where, where they're just having a devil of a time finding, uh, finding the help they need for their family members? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we always say, I mean, in the behavioral health community, it's when you call somebody, but where, where are they going to go, right? This is kind of a lot of the conversation we're having about a 988 crisis number or, or crisis response teams. It's, it's great to have that, but then where are they going to go? And, and, and we see oftentimes, you know, the emergency rooms are, are having people stay longer and longer times. Um, and again, it's because there's, there's nowhere for them to go and the continuity of care, right? Some people do need to have that crisis stabilization. Some people need to have some beds where they stay longer to be transferred into um, other community programs and transitional housing. And it, it, people need services when they need them and where they need them along their, their journey. I think the one thing that I would add to the workforce conversation is that peers and family members are a huge component and we have no licenses or, you know, we finally have gotten peer certification, which um, is so wonderful, but 99% of the time, loved ones and individuals are at the home and the families are navigating the system and NAMI gets the calls of where do I go and who do I talk to, whether it's at the state level or locally, where luckily we have 58 local affiliates throughout California who can connect families and individuals to locally what's working. Sure. But I do think um, this it makes me so happy to hear that, that we're putting so much emphasis on increasing the workforce at all levels. Um, and it is every, every single um, profession has a very specific 
and helpful piece of that puzzle. And peers and families play a huge role in that recovery for the workforce and for individuals who are, you know, not in treatment at the moment. Mm-hmm. Tom, Tom, for those um, individuals, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it's not all that common, but probably too common, uh, far, far more common than you would, you would wish. But in those instances where you need to refer somebody to, um, to um, where you need to refer somebody to uh, uh, a psychiatrist, do you have a psychiatrist to refer that individual? Uh, that's a really great question. So uh, in, in my district, we have actually partnered with a number of agencies. And what's um, nice about that partnership is that um, with school counselors, school psychologists, school social workers, you know, we can case manage um, the, the, the parents that are trying to navigate the system. So when questions come up or barriers, or for many families, there's certain barriers that come up with accessing, you know, the mental health system, we can help them, you know, navigate that, which I think is a really critical piece of our work. You know, it's nice to have all these outside organizations, but for many families, there's a certain, you know, there, there could be barriers, which just Ms. Jessica kind of um, spoke a little bit about too. And I think for, for districts as, as well, you know, licensed providers, many licensed providers have been providing telecounseling services for a, a number of years, but for school districts, this is something totally new. And so we really had to pivot in, in a hard way to make telecounseling work for us. And I can't help but think that continuing those services um, the accessibility of those services will be really important as we have a number of students that are receiving their education uh, in, in a home learning program, such as independent study. Uh, I think that's just another way, uh, another population we just need to keep an eye on and, and continue to have access to, but it's going to be through a virtual platform. And so I think school districts will need to continue to plan for that virtual platform uh, in, in the future. Um, we have a question from, from Teresa. Uh, Paschini, um, hoping I pronounced that correct, correctly, Teresa. Um, uh, I am frustrated by the lack of progress on the workforce, I assume, development issue since the passage of Proposition 63 in 2004, which established a specific component focused on uh, workforce development. Um, uh, this, I think, would be for, for Dr. Galley, but... Um, has why has the state not used uh, used the money from Prop 63 in a more thoughtful way? Perhaps I'm paraphrasing here uh, to increase workforce development. And is that is that coming along? Yeah, I think first off, um, looking forward to how we do this, I think Prop 63 is an important component, but just one. There are other infusions of funds that could be made to support the workforce development piece. And I think we intend to uh, turn over every stone to see what we can invest in this space and what are the most effective strategies. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the structure of Prop 63, the funding, uh, the, 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 some of the initiatives that are really county-led, county-focused, sometimes don't lend themselves to big infrastructure investments like you have to do with workforce. I mean, these are not overnight investments. These are things that are going to take heavy lifts, lots of collaboration across, um, you know, institutions and settings that span the entire state. So, you know, our intent moving forward is to really uh, leverage our strategies, not just on 63, but other funding sources to make sure we don't miss this opportunity. Because I I think more and more, this is, I mean, I really appreciate our panelists talking about this in such concrete ways that it's, you know, the workforce crisis is uh, without fixing that, we don't get through the behavioral health crisis. And so our intent is to uh, certainly focus on 63, but uh, wrap around that with a lot of other resources as well. And I'll I'll just say the Children's Behavioral Health uh, Initiative which has multiple components, one of which is a focus on workforce and specifically on bringing together 
uh, more resources, more workers for school settings because of the recognition that schools are such critical partners in helping deliver the behavioral health services for young people, not just on site, but I like to talk about it as not just school based, but school linked. Um, to your point, Tom, it doesn't all have to happen from a school setting. It can happen in other settings and for students who are on the campus or not. And uh, we can no longer look at this as a, you know, eight to three Monday through Friday, except during the summer kind of endeavor. This has to be weekends. It has to fit into the lives of the people we're trying to serve to be impactful. And that's not always, you know, over the lunch hour on Tuesday. It might be a, a different time. So getting a workforce that is willing, able to do this in that sort of different context with the children's behavioral health and other resources, I think is really what we're aiming to, to go to. So yeah, we Dan, have, Dan, if I could just add something to By all means, Paul. Workforce development, the training individuals, I mean, with master's degrees in counseling and social work, in my profession in clinical psychology, has become an extremely expensive endeavor. Uh, the large majority of psych clinical psychologists in this country are now trained in uh, professional schools, private schools of psychology, as opposed to public universities. And many individuals going into master's degrees in counseling are attending private schools as well, leaving school with large amounts of student loan debt, uh, which makes it difficult for them to work in community agencies um, and to, to reach you know, the populations of high need um, and be able to, 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 to make a living and pay back their student loans. Uh, so I see this as contributing to the, the problem and stuff. I mean, we need more and more people. Psychiatry is the same thing, the cost of attending medical school. We have a chronic shortage of psychiatrists in the state of California and around the country. Uh, um, I oftentimes, when I make a referral, people sometimes have to wait a month or two months in order to get an appointment with a psychiatrist. So I think that that's an element in workforce development is making the training and the education in these areas more accessible, you know, to a wider range of individuals and to a diverse, more diverse student population who can then provide more relevant services to the populations they come from. Hmm. So we have about 10 minutes and I wanted to reserve uh, the final segment to, to really, to, to look forward to, to, you know, what, what you four um, experts from, from different perspectives see as, as, as most needed. Um, Susan Eggman and her keynote talked about a billion dollars for infrastructure. Clearly um, uh, California long has been short on beds. I don't know if that's uh, beds for people who are severely mentally ill. I guess I'm wondering uh, though, what else uh, is, you see as needed? And why don't we start uh, with you, Tom? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and from the school perspective, I know that there's just not enough university seats for uh, in schools counseling, school psychology, and school social worker programs. I mean, we need to be able to expand those programs at the university level so that we can be creating more credentialed uh, personnel to, to help with this. Um, you know, from a, again, from a, a school perspective, creating tiered systems of support is really critical. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I so appreciate what Jessica said about having a, a curriculum that's just part of the program. I, I know many districts have been adapting social emotional learning curriculum, you know, to uh, provide those services. Specifically in my district, we've added that component within English language arts. So when you think about the writing projects and reading project, it's, it's related to uh, back to um, uh, psychological uh, issues, you know, social emotional issues. And, and so, you know, and, and I, I, I got to give a shout out to the state legislature legislator who uh, legislation when they, you know, increase funding for LCAP money so schools can invest. What's more. LCAP? Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I'm in school systems. I often speak in acronyms. Oh. Thank you for calling me out on that. It's local control uh, accountability program. And so each school site, you know, decides how they're going to spend their monies to meet the needs of their students. And so that was increased this year. And so many of them are investing in these curriculums in uh, school psychologists, school counselors, you know, to, to help uh, bridge that gap um, to provide services to students. Um, you know, but these universal uh, 
programs are going to be really critical just so students are, you know, up to speed on, on mental health. Um, it, we're also providing a lot of, uh, at the secondary level, um, programs, uh, drop-in programs for students, uh, along with, you know, individual and group counseling. I, I really think, you know, continuing to be innovative and creative in these ways is really going to be um, uh, the topic of further conversation as we move forward. Um, Jessica, from from a family perspective, what 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 do you believe is is necessary? The you know two or three things that you think are uh, so important that that uh, folks like Dr. Galley focus on. I think there's no one size fits all when we're talking about behavioral health challenges and the solution. I think that there needs to be accessibility for everyone, no matter what, where they are on like this spectrum of prevention and early intervention to severe mental illness or behavioral health challenges. And there should be services and supports. While we do believe that we have to flip the triangle in that we want to focus on prevention and early intervention heavily, we also cannot turn our backs on those families and individuals who are living with severe mental illness. And so it's, we have to kind of walk this balance beam and, and bring that pendulum from one side and to the middle, really, um, where we can't wait for crisis to take place. We need to prevent it, right? We need to make sure that we have services and supports where people need it on their journey. That might mean beds, that might mean uh, housing that is specific. You know, there's a lot going on in housing and we're so grateful for the administration's focus on that. However, people with severe mental illness need very specific types of housing and supports. And so um, from our perspective, we really wanna make sure that um, we're creating a better future for generations to come. And we have a great opportunity to take these challenges and drive them forward more rapidly to make sure that no call for help goes unanswered. Um, but we also need to make sure that the families aren't left behind either in this process and that our voices are important to the treatment and family could be anything. It doesn't have to be uh, you know, mother, father, spouse, sister, brother. It can be community, friends, families, but that we have to recognize that this is not um, Although a lot of people feel lonely in this, in this illness, we are all in it together and we, we all need the supports and the education and the services as well. So I think that the, the biggest pieces is that we know people can live their best lives, but only if they're healthy in their body and in their mind. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, one of the issues I think maybe is um federal privacy laws, um, helping um, uh, people get access to people who, who care about them can be difficult. Um, so Paul, this California Psychological Association, in, in the very few minutes we have left, um, give, give us a sense of, of what uh, you think uh, needs to be done. Well, I think, Dan, we need to be aware that um, we're, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of the mental health uh, problems that are going to emerge in the next few years as a result of this pandemic. I mean, hopefully our health systems have learned that um, there probably will be other pandemics and we need to be better prepared to deal with those going forward. I mean, the, 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 the very problematic rollout of the vaccine program in this country um, and continues to be problematic with such a high number of people aren't vaccinated indicates that we've got a problem. Um, you know, just with that real physical you know, disease of COVID. Um, but for psychologically speaking, you know, I'm sure Tom is aware of this. I mean, our children have lost a year to a year and a half of, um, of their education, of the social emotional contact. Uh, um, UNICEF issued a report uh, yesterday indicating that 1.9 billion children around the world have lost a year of their education and all that social emotional growth which lends itself and contributes to intellectual development, but also uh, emotional development and social development. Um, and I think we need to anticipate um, dealing with the consequences of that going forward. Uh, so, so I agree with 
everything everyone said. I mean, we need to make more investment in developing um, healthcare and mental health or behavioral health resources, a workforce that's able to respond to those needs. Um, you know, I think my profession has done a tremendous amount of research on the impact of these, these socioeconomic political factors on mental health, but we don't, we're not putting tools in place uh, to help people to, to deal with the consequences of them. Um, so, and I think that we all need to be mobilized. I noticed one of my colleagues asked a question about an interstate compact allowing um, professionals, psychologists and other healthcare professionals to practice across state lines. That continues to be an issue in our country. Um, we're all licensed to, to provide services in one particular place. And when somebody picks up and moves across the state line um, or two people in a family are living in different places, there are restrictions as to uh, how we can, whether we can practice and see them or not. Um, and it would be useful for each of the states to make progress you know, in, in, in developing more, more movement. To, and that might help with the workforce issue that we, we have here. Mm. Um, so, Dr. Galley, I've been uh, covering uh, Sacramento since 91, so I've lived through a fair number of administrations. I've, I've never seen a governor uh, talk as much about mental illnesses as, as, as an overriding issue, as one of the chief issues, as I have uh, Governor Newsom. How, um, how, given that, though, what are you going to do? What, what needs to be done? Uh, uh, in, in the state of California to help people who are on the streets, to help people avoid getting on the streets? Give us, give us what your prescription is here. I think I mentioned some of the components and others have too, but I think first off is continuing to really invite everyone who's involved in the conversation to be part of it. I mean, education, the formal clinical community, the peer and the family support community, all of these uh, individuals have an important role. And I think the, I, I keep coming back to the Children's Behavioral Health Initiative because this is a really upstream focused uh, intervention that is looking at all of the elements that make a commitment like no other state has made to the zero to 25 uh, population in our state that says, we're gonna be there for you early in the middle and later so that we can really change the consequences that we see day in, day out with levels of homelessness, incarceration, joblessness, um, and other, other challenges. Um, so I think that is going to be an important initiative that is funded, that needs to be implemented, and we'll be working on that. I think the, the truth is, and we haven't spent much time talking about how the justice system has become the default for so many of those with severe behavioral health conditions, um, languishing on the streets, ending up in the courts that have become another form of clinic in our state, and really investing in the continuum that allows us to not just identify needs early, but address them, as some of the other panelists have said, with the housing and the clinical supports. It's that one-two punch, and we we uh, now have a lot of strategies to bring together the funding within Medicaid, um, our CalAIM initiative, which is trying to build and streamline some of the uh, disconnection between uh, physical health and behavioral health conditions, I think is going to be another key strategy for us, simplifying not just what it means to access care, but what it means to provide that care, and really sort of building to the deepest core of California a system that people can rely on. So we don't have to wait so long that, I mean, the best case scenario is you end up in an emergency room or an urgent care center. More likely right now, it's you end up on the streets longer than you should, or you end up incarcerated. And those stories um, uh, need to change. And I think making the investments that we've committed to and that we're going to continue to make are, are part of that story. The last thing I'll say and then end is just back to where I started the answer to this. It's gonna take all of us, right? Um, our insurance plans have a role here. Our schools have a role here. Our clinical community has a role here. Um, our homeless service providers, our uh, you, you know uh, higher ed system, all of us need to come together and we're gonna to continue to convene those tables uh, at Health and Human Services on behalf of the governor to make sure that we put our best foot forward, not just because we have the resources today, but we have to use these resources to galvanize the voice and purpose 
um, to j just be better and deliver on a promise we haven't been able to keep for a long time. Great. Dr. Galley, uh, pa Paul Marcial, Jessica Cruz, and Tom Sop, thank you so much. And, and, and thanks once again to Tim Foster, John Howard, and Capital Weekly for putting this together. I hope you've all learned something. Thank you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.